from our studios around the world, this is Eat Well, Travel Better, the business of food travel podcast. Every month, we bring you the world's culinary tourism industry professionals and share with you strategies, tactics, and information that help make you a more effective leader, communicator, and professional in our culinary tourism industry. I'm your host, Eric Wolf. Thanks for listening. In 2001, when the dot-com bubble burst and then September 11 hit, Rico's marketing business collapsed. After some soul-searching, he decided to enroll in culinary school, an experience that changed his life. He worked in restaurants and catering while building his contact networks and continuing marketing work in the hospitality industry. This eventually led him to create Mise en Place, an e-commerce platform that delves into the world of gastronomy through artisanal food and beverage products, experiences, and stories. Here's our conversation with Rico. Rico, hey, thanks so much for being on the Business of Food Travel podcast. It is truly a pleasure to speak with you today. Hey, it's my pleasure to be here also. It's uh, great to uh, you know meet you uh, on this podcast, to be able to actually have a great conversation with you. Well, for those of our listeners who don't know who you are, what you do, can you give us a little bit of a, a short introduction about um, who is Rico Mandel and, and what you do exactly? <laughs> That's a complicated question. Um, I'm, <laughs> essentially, I'm a Renaissance man, uh, quite simply. Um, but uh, what I do today is I've got a marketing company, and uh, my passion is with Mise en Place, which is an online culinary e-commerce website that, where we focus on um, bringing artisan producers' products and experiences to the general public and telling the stories uh, behind them. Um, that sounds really interesting. What were you doing before that? Well, before that I was, oh boy. Um, I, I've been, uh, I own a marketing uh, agency and, um, which I've been working on for what, 30 years now. Um, and we focus on that. It's kind of the opposite end of the spectrum. It's all about, uh, industrial manufacturers and we do all of their marketing and that kind of thing. And, uh, but uh, and before that, I my my first business I owned was uh, back in uh, when I was nineteen. I I bought a, uh, a black and white darkroom and uh, custom photo lab, and uh, it was a rental darkroom place. We rented out darkrooms and we did photo finishing and things like that for people, and uh, that was a blast. And I taught photography at that time and uh, went into ad agencies and and did some photography for them, and kind of stumbled into the marketing area and. Um, that's uh, you know what brought me into doing the business that I have currently today, and then what got me into the culinary area was that my marketing business after the dot com bubble burst that went downhill, and uh, there was a lot of all of a sudden overnight my business just was cut by you know down to like ten percent, and I had to uh, find something else to do, and so I went to culinary school, and that just completely ignited my other passion in life, which has always been food. And uh, so that's what brought me into um, completing, uh, into forming Mise en Place. Okay. What was it about attending culinary school that just flicked the switch for you? Everything. I mean, I was just completely consumed with everything food. I just loved it. I loved learning about it. I had had a lot of experience with different ingredients and I was familiar with all that, but to learn all of these great techniques and to be, to just take all of this raw information that I had before and hone it down very specifically and learn 
how to put things together and learn how to best sear off meat or cook fish or cook uh, or, or bake bread or, you know, even, at one point we even <laughs> I had to make a wedding cake. Um, you know, I mean, just all of that. I would I remember I would go to school from six o'clock in the morning till 11 o'clock in the uh, in the morning. And then I'd work my other business. I'd come home and then I'd cook some more. And my wife at the time, she would look at me and say, aren't you sick of cooking? And I says, no. I said, I could just keep cooking and cooking and cooking. Because there's something about the immediacy of creating something and then putting it in front of someone and watching them really enjoy that. That's just, wow. It's, uh, it's, pretty, it's an amazing experience. So I'm surprised, given your passion for food and everything you just described, I'm surprised that you didn't make it to culinary school sooner. Mm -hmm. It's kind of funny because I never really thought about it. It was uh, because after the dot-com bubble burst and my business, my marketing business kind of went downhill, um, I was moping around the house. I mean, my first, I had two loves growing up, photography and the culinary. And the culinary was kind of like something I liked, but the photography, I got my first photography job when I was 18. And I, then I realized, oh, wow, okay, I could make this into, into something. And so I kind of followed that train and that track for many years and didn't even think about a food or culinary career. Of course, at that time, we didn't have Food Network, you know. We had Julia Child, we had Joyce Chen, we had Jacques Pepin, we had the Galloping Gourmet. I mean, we had a few things, and that was all on public television, and and that was it. It wasn't as widespread. So, um, and then after the dot com bubble burst, I was moping around the house for about a year. My wife got sick of it, and uh, said, "Well, you like to cook. Why don't you go to culinary school?" And you know what? Don't go to like some dumb culinary school like Fred's Culinary School. You got to go to a good one. <laughs> and go be a chef. And I said, wow, that's great. And then went to, uh, had an interview at Cordon Bleu. And I'll never forget one of the questions the guy, the interviewer asked me, he says, so how long have you been considering going to culinary school? And I looked at him, I said, oh, about a week. <laughs> <laughs> and what was his answer? He just kind of looked at me dumbfounded. Because I think a lot of the people would come in and say, oh, I've been dreaming about this for years and da, 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 da. And I think he probably thought, oh, this guy's just going to, yeah, a week and then he's going to come in and then he's going to be gone. And no, I went through, ate it up, graduated. Uh, I had a, a one hour drive or every morning to get to culinary school and to get there, you had to be on time. So if you were, if you were on time, you were late. So I had to be essentially ready, my station set up, ready to go at 6 a.m. So that meant I had to get there at about you know, 5.45, 5.40, something like that, so that I could get everything put together. Did you notice a lot of waste in culinary school, just throwing away all kinds of food? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you go through a lot of product, and of course, you're dealing with students, and so students go through product, and, and of course, the chefs get very upset when they see wasted product. I mean, we would, and and it wasn't even so much, it's one thing that, when you're actually cooking something and you burn it or whatever, that's one thing. But there were times where students would just, you know, the, the chef would find a pound of butter in the, in the trash can, or they would find, you know, I mean, all kinds of different product just thrown in the trash can. And it was, that would just, 
piss them off to no no extent. But uh, the other thing that was drilled into us also at culinary school, and of course, much later when I was working at a restaurant, was the idea of not wasting. What can we do with whatever we have? And later on, when you're doing menu selection and that kind of thing, it's you know, it would be one thing to create a menu, which was great, but it's another thing to create a menu where the amount of waste in the menu, in the items that you're putting on that menu is minimal. Yeah, I, um, I've known people who have worked in restaurants, including restaurants where most things are made from scratch. You know, nothing is brought in in a plastic bag from food mm-hmm. service. And uh, still a considerable amount of food waste. I remember a friend who said he worked in a restaurant and they had to get in and cut the mushrooms every morning. And then all the mushroom stalks were thrown away. And he suggested to the chef owner, why don't we make mushroom soup from this? And she said, well, we're not going to do that. Okay. <laughs> oh yeah. That's a lot of mushrooms that are being wasted. <laughs> yeah. I mean things like that we would it would be that kind of stuff in the restaurant I worked in that would just be added to the stock. Um yeah. Or or in some certain instances if we had enough of it we would um do as you said, you know, we'd make a a mushroom soup or we would use it for, you know, for family meal for staff meal. Yeah. Yeah. That makes good sense. Once you finished culinary school, what was your next step after that? Well, my next step after culinary school is I went to go work uh, for a restaurant called the Saddle Peak Lodge, which was at that time my favorite restaurant. They were a destination restaurant in Los Angeles in the middle of the mountains. They specialized in wild game. I just loved that place. I love the look of the restaurant. I love the atmosphere. I love the food. I loved everything about it. And when we were in culinary school, we had to do a stage at a restaurant. And that was the restaurant that I picked. I called and I called and I called and I called and I kept calling. And finally, the chef took my call. I remember I told him I need, I'm in culinary school. I want to do a stage. And, and uh, you know, I've eaten at your restaurant about four or five times. And every time the meal was perfect and I love it. And that's why I want to come there. And I'll never forget. He says, well, flattery will get you everywhere. All right, (laughs) come on in. It just so happened that that day was a Friday. And that was the day that our chefs, our chef instructors had decided that they were going to kind of give us an idea of what it was like to be in a restaurant kitchen. And they scared the crap out of me. I mean, they were like, it made it sound like that Lucille Ball episode where you've got mm-hmm. the conveyor going and the chocolates mm-hmm. coming out, you know, and they made it sound like, oh, there's going to be tickets going crazy. The chef's going to be yelling at you. And they just told nothing but one horror story after another, after another. And uh, so I was nervous going in and I made sure I was there at least a half hour early. And I happened to pull up right at the same time the chef got there. And so he and I walked in together and it was completely opposite experience of what my chef instructors had told me. He, he gave me stuff to do. You know, they were high-fiving, they were having music, everybody was getting along, it was good. And I remember I was doing some prep and I, with the sous chef at the time and he looks at me and says, how did you get in here? Because the chef never allows anyone into the kitchen. No, no students, nothing. And I said, I don't know, I just was persistent, I guess. And so then when it came time for me to get a job, 
in the business because I had to work at a kitchen uh, to complete my degree. I called him up and he looked at me and he says, well, if you, I'd love to have you. And if you want to work for less money than you ever have and harder than you've ever worked before, then I'd love to have you. And I said, okay, sign me up. <laughs> it's amazing so, how, how chef, uh, chef owners and good restaurants can do that. Right. It's, I don't know. It's almost like the, the lure of the passion and the love for the food and the creativity you, it doesn't really matter. You just want, want to be able to do it. It doesn't matter what it pays. Right. And that was pretty much it. It was, wow, I can work there. I didn't care. I did not care. You know, the only thing I cared about was I was going to learn and I was going to learn from one of the best restaurants at the time in LA. And I was going to learn from uh, a great chef and this was going to be awesome. And so that's, uh, that was to me, that was the most important thing. So how long did you work in a restaurant and then what, where did you go after that? Well, I only worked full time there a little over a year and then worked in combination in my marketing business. And also I worked there part-time. So I worked there part-time for probably about, probably about three or four years after that. And they bring me in for different special events uh, or when uh, a cook couldn't show up, then, hey, can you come in tonight? That kind of thing. And so I was in there pretty frequently after that. And then, of course, I found out that the second season of Hell's Kitchen, Gordon Ramsay was going to be there. So I said, okay, guys, I'm working that night. I don't care. I'm working. <laughs> that was definitely one of the highlights of, uh, of working there was when they, when they shot that episode at, uh, at the Saddle Peak. And um, I got to meet him. And that was actually the second time I met him. And that was just, you know, it was short, quick, but it was great. And he was very... Uh, very gracious to everyone and uh, appreciative of, of what we did. The World Food Travel Association is the world's leading authority on food and beverage tourism. Founded in 2001, each year we serve a community of 200,000 professionals in more than 150 countries. Thinking about a career change because of the pandemic or looking to improve your current skills? Consider our bespoke training and certification programs in culinary tourist guiding, culinary tour operations, restaurant and food service, and culinary destination marketing. Visit academy.worldfoodtravel.org to learn more and get started. And then that was when you started your, your marketing company, you said after that. So it, you kind of segued then full time into the marketing? Well, I was kind of doing both. I, the marketing, I, what I did was after I after I left Saddle Peak and then, because I tried to get a couple of other jobs as a chef at that point in a few different restaurants, but the pay wasn't, because of course I was not, I didn't have the experience, the pay wasn't going to be great. And I figured, well, for what they were going to pay me full time, I can pretty much sit by the phone, wait for it to ring and make that in my marketing business. So mm -hmm. I put my marketing business first, but I did a fair amount of culinary work on the side, not only at the Saddle Peak, but I also was a guest chef at a restaurant one day a week for a while. And, um, and that was, that was a lot of fun. I did uh, wine dinners. Um, I did, 
some catering work. And I also did uh, temp work. I worked for a, a temp uh, agency, a culinary temp agency. So I got to work in a variety of different kitchens. And that was a lot of great experience because I got to work uh, in everything from Mattel's kitchen at, uh, you know, in their in their commissary, which was which I was not my was not my thing. You know, when you're talking about taking things out of bags and boxes and then repackaging them. That just didn't work for me. And then I also got to work at a couple of the uh, movie studios here. And uh, that was a lot of fun uh, because I got a little bit more free reign. I, I operated better when I could have more free reign and I could deal with individual ingredients and that kind of thing rather than prefab kind of stuff. I did that and, and then worked a lot of um, large large catering events. I mean, you know, anywhere from 500 to 800 to 1,000 people and, and doing plated stuff. So to me, it was just all great experience. At what point in this career trajectory did you start to have an appreciation for the small artisanal food brands that you feature on Mise en Place? Well, I started to have an appreciation for small artisanal food brands almost from the get-go in my culinary career. I mean, I just, you know, go, for me, going to a farmer's market was just like heaven. I loved seeing all the fresh produce. I loved talking to the farmers and talking to whomever was there, talking, you know, if they had a cheesemaker, I loved talking to the cheesemaker. I really was interested in the background, the stories, and just kind of the, the love that and passion that each one of these people puts into their product. And of course, I could also taste the difference between that and most, a lot of commercial grade products. And that started early on and then it just kind of grew. And part of one of the things that I did living in Los Angeles, there was a whole untapped little known wine uh, market, I guess, or, you know, uh, Appalachian where they were, there were a lot of vineyards that were being grown in the Santa Monica mountains here in, in the Malibu area. And there were a lot of guys that were making wine and they were making actually really good wine. And so I, for a short time, I did some, you know, wine tours uh, there where I put these tours together. I, I'd, uh, you know, I made a deal with a limo company and we'd, get, we'd hire a limo. And instead of taking people just to the couple of two or three tasting rooms that they had, which is pretty much what every other tour company was doing, I just, I, I made friends with some of the actual winemakers. And then I would call them up and I'd say, Hey, I got a tour on such and such a date. Can I bring them by? So the tours I did, the, I only did two or three of them gave such a unique experience for the people who went because no one was going to their homes. And so you're literally invited to a winemaker's home in the Santa Monica mountains and taken around their vineyard and explained and you're tasting the wines and all that. And that, that experience was just that even ingrained all of that kind of small producer mentality into me. Um, mm -hmm. and, and really showed me just, I mean, I was fascinated by it and I just wanted to share it with everyone. And so that's kind of was the catalyst. That was kind of the inception of where, what came next was my idea to put together mise en place. And at the time, there really wasn't anyone who was, you know, there were some artisan food websites out there, but they were 
one or the other. And I wanted to put all the culinary world into one website. So I wanted to have not only small artisan food producers, but also different cooks that like to cook, different tour companies, either, you know, the small tour companies that are all vying for, you know, for customers and to be able to have a way where I can connect the consumer with the people behind the products and experiences that they're getting so that they're getting a more personalized experience. And there's more of a connection formed between that. It's not just, here's this balsamic vinegar from this manufacturer that's been in business you know, for 400 and some odd years, same family run business, and you should buy it. But it's, well, let's introduce you to the CEO. Let's take you there. Let's show you what this place is all about and what the history is and, and why to this day they still make a phenomenal product, regardless of the fact that it's grown and and also how they're keeping tabs on quality first and everything else is second. And those are some of the, you know, kind of stories that that to just always fascinated me. And now when I fast forward, it took me about 10 years to put Mise en Place together. And I finally launched it in 2021. You know, now I get to tell those stories and I get to bring those things to the public. So how has that journey with Mise en Place changed after the pandemic, where we've heard about so many businesses going out of business and the changes to the supply chains and food systems and so on? What what has changed for, for how you do business as, as Mise en Place now? That's kind of an interesting question because, you know, we launched in April of 2021. So I guess the pandemic was still moving along there. So we kind of grew up through the pandemic or, and, you know, through that, the beginning part and beyond. And the nice thing was, is it was, it's been a slow growth. We were able to be flexible enough and nimble enough to take care of the needs of our customers and to, you know, find new vendors and to, uh, and anytime any issue might've come up, then we were able to resolve it very quickly. So I don't know how much how, how many things have actually changed other than everything just keeps getting better. So for instance, this year, a lot of people started booking tours, whereas in 2022, people were still hesitant to travel. Yeah. So we didn't really book much in the way of tours. People were buying mostly food products. But all of a sudden, starting in January of this year, people were starting to book tours. They're starting to book cooking classes because they're traveling to Italy. We've got a lot of stuff going on in Italy on the on the website. We book a variety of things there. And that's one of the th- one of the things that's changed. We've also increased our product line significantly. And we keep finding new vendors and we keep finding new products and putting them on the website. And those things ebb and flow and they change. And uh, and that's part of the exciting thing is how all of this stuff just keeps changing and and going in different directions. But I mean, I guess not necessarily different directions, but all in the same direction, but just adding different kinds of experiences and, and meeting. 
Was it hard finding companies to participate? Because I think what I noticed, and we noticed this among food tour operators specifically, some of them went out of business, but then almost as soon as some went out of business, new ones came into the forefront. So is that something similar that happened in the artisanal products arena? Yeah, I would say so. It's kind of interesting because some of them were really gung-ho to oh yeah, I'd love to do this. This would be great. And then when it would come down to it, either, yeah, in the early part of it, a lot of these would be gung-ho. And then all of a sudden, when it came down to it, well, we rethought it. Well, we're not quite sure if we want to do it, or we changed our the way we're doing business, or there's a variety of different things that I heard. Um, and especially before we had launched the site, it was definitely more difficult to have people really go all the way through the process and bring them and onboard them and, and put them on the site because we just had a little demo. We didn't have any track record. We had nothing. You know, so now when I'm looking to find new vendors for the site, whether they're cooking classes, whether they're tour operators, whether they're products manufacturers, there's a lot more for them to see. So they understand the concept a lot better. And, and that's the cool thing is that everybody who sees it goes, wow, this is really cool what you've put together. Excellent. And are you operating just in the United States or do you operate in other countries too? Currently for most of our food products, although not all, but most of our food products are just shipped here in the States and Canada. You know, and the, the main reason why it's, there's not more overseas is just because of the cost of shipping. Uh, but we do have most of our cooking classes and tours. Those are all overseas. So we've got quite a number of them uh, in Italy, for instance. We've got tours in Croatia. We've got tours in Spain. Uh, we even have a company that we're hooked up with in South Africa to be able to offer their tours. And we're always looking for you know, for more interesting tour companies that are doing small, you know, leading small groups and that kind of thing sure. uh, that can give a little bit more personalized service and uh, really make people feel very welcomed because that's one of the big things that I always stress is we want to make our customers feel like they're family. And when a customer inquires about something or they book a tour we want to follow up with them and say, hey, how was your tour? Oh, how did everything go? Did you have a good time? Or when they book something, oh, well, where else, where else are you going in Italy, for instance? Oh, you're going here? Well, maybe we can make some recommendations or we'll just wish them a, a great tour. And, you know, it's just those little things that I really like to bring yeah. into the fold so that everyone feels really welcomed when they're doing business with us. Well, Rico, you, you clearly have a lot of experience and you've kind of wrapped it up all nicely in what you're doing now with Mise en Place. What would you have advised a younger version of you knowing now, what would you have been able to tell yourself when you were growing up? Well, I would probably look at the younger me and two things. One would be fearlessness and that's fearlessness in leadership and fearlessness with what you're doing. So that you're not really listening to a lot of the outside voices and that kind of thing and uh, that are telling you why you can't do something. Surround yourself with people who keep telling you that you can and approach things from a fearless tact that 
whatever it is that you want to accomplish, you can accomplish it. But it's just about taking the next step. It's not about thinking at the end game. It's about thinking, okay, what do I need to do today to move the needle forward? Who do I need to talk to? Don't be afraid to talk to people. Don't be afraid to get help. And don't be afraid to talk about your idea. I know for me, that was a big thing when I was much younger as I was always afraid to tell people what I thought or you know what I wanted to do because I was afraid of being ridiculed or afraid, oh, you can never do that or whatever would come out of people's mouths. And so I figured, well, okay, as long as I keep it to myself, then I don't have, then, then I can work on it behind the scenes. And then if it doesn't materialize, then I didn't fail, right? Mm-hmm. Or I don't look bad in, fr- in, in front of everybody else's eyes. That's where the fearlessness comes in. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of these other people. Talk about your idea. Talk about, tell everybody what you're doing because you never know where the help is going to come from. And that to me is one of the things I learned later in life is, yeah, as long as I keep talking about it, that brings it into the real world. And when I bring it into the real world, then things start to happen. But as long as I just keep it in my head as an idea, that's where it'll pretty much always stay. I I like it. Those are all good, good ideas for for people to ruminate on. So you must have a pet peeve that really gets your go. What might that be? (laughs) Yeah, I do. Really bad customer service. There's not only bad service, but there's also uneducated, uninformed, uninterested workers. Yeah. So you go into a retail store and you ask the guy, hey, tell me the difference between this product and this product. And the guy just goes and reads the description that I could have read and says, oh, well, you know, this one says X, Y, and Z. And this one here says X, Y, and Z. And he's reading uh, the placard right there. It's really, dude. And a complete lack of passion and, and real disinterest in me. So it's just kind of all happenstance. Or if I'm talking to someone on the phone, it's not about solving the problem. Or even recognizing that I'm upset, for instance, it's just about them reading their script and telling me why they can't accommodate me in some way. (laughs) Do you think service has gotten worse since the pandemic? You know, that's an interesting question. Since the pandemic, I mean, I know service has definitely gotten a lot worse. I know that uh, it depends on where I'm at. In general, I would say, oddly enough, in restaurants, services, at least my experience in service here in LA is that service has gotten better in restaurants in general. You know, you always find exceptions to the rule, but I would say that in certain instances with some of the larger companies, surprisingly, I have found that when I call the customer service line to get help and answers, it's oddly enough, it seems to be better than it used to be. Hmm. It's kind of a mixed bag right now. That's what I'm, that's what I found in general when I'm out there dealing with any of that kind of stuff, but I haven't found it to be horrible. But then again, I have found plenty of instances where in, in general, they just don't care and there's no empathy and there's no connection. And that to me, when I, talk to someone on the phone, I want to have at least some sort of a, a friendly connection with them. Uh, yeah. I want them to, you know, to actually see me as a human being and not just, oh, number 168 on their screen here, answer the call and see what they have to say. You know? Right. Being a number rather than a name. Yeah. 
Yeah, I am with you on that. Where I live in Europe, I, I live in Spain, and I'll have to say customer service is, is not fantastic here. I, I, I have had good service in Madrid and Barcelona, but outside mm-hmm. the, the biggest cities, it just doesn't exist. And I, I'm almost at a point where I don't want to go out to eat anymore, you know, <laughs> because I, I – you know, when, when you've had the best in life, whether it's it's having lived in New York or San Francisco or Sydney or whatever, and you, you know, you've lived a lot, and you've traveled a lot, and you've experienced a lot, and you've tasted a lot. I, and I live in a tourism area, and I, I don't know why the local workers don't think that they have to work a little harder to impress tourists. It's always baffled me. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. There's, uh, you know, there is that love-hate relationship between the locals and tourists in different parts. And at the same time, I can understand not wanting to go out to eat too much because if I was in Madrid, I, ne- I know when I go to Florence, I'm in the uh, Mercado Centrale multiple times a week buying stuff and cooking things. I mean, the, the products that are available there and the, the quality of the products and everything, it's just, yeah, why why go out to eat when I can cook all kinds of great stuff and I've got all these wonderful, amazing uh, ingredients just at my fingertips, which here in LA, for that caliber, you're paying top dollar and it's kind of unaffordable. You know, I have to agree with that. I think if I go to a restaurant and it's reheated food service or you hear the microwave dinging, that's it. I'm, I'm out of there. I just, I, I don't have patience for that. I mean, I, I don't need someone to press start on the microwave for me. You know, do something that I can't do at home. Right. Exactly. When I travel, as I will be again this fall, I get it. There's so much great food out there. And yet, you know, I mean, I don't know. I, I haven't, and I, I have to confess Spain is the next is on my is next on my list and probably next year. I know that when I travel in in Italy, Italy's kind of an interesting country because food is such a passion there that I think I've only had one or two kind of disappointing meals when I ate out anywhere there. But for the most part, even the simplest sandwich or whatever it might be there is just just ends up being spectacular. So you want to hear something funny about Italy and food? We do a lot of research here at the association. And in, I think it was our last research study, we interviewed Italians and we asked them what motivated them to travel. And, And usually like when we looked at Americans or Canadians or Irish or Mexicans or Chinese or Indians and Australians, uh, food was always right up there one of the highest numbers. And when it came to asking people in France and Italy what motivated them to travel, and it was things like seeing friends, national parks, shopping, and food was really low down on the list. And we thought that was really strange. And then we did a little digging and we asked people follow-up questions. We said, you know, why is that? And they they said, well, we have the best food. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it makes perfect sense. The Italians and French are not traveling for food because they know they have the best food. I love that. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, and I could probably agree with that. And I think Spain is right up there as well. I don't know what your interview, you know, what, you know, from everybody that I've talked to that's been to Spain from the States, they all tell me, oh my God, Rico, you got to go. The, the food's just incredible. It's unbelievable, et cetera. And 
You so. know, I think it really depends on where you go in Spain. I mean, the Basque country, mm. I think, is in a class by itself. And I think that there are some, some great dishes throughout the country. But I, I've always had an issue that I don't think Spain really brands itself very well. And, for example, name three Spanish wine varietals. Now, I'm sure you can do that, but mm-hmm. most people can't. And when you start to talk to people and say, okay, name 10 Spanish dishes, and after they get past tapas, paella, gazpacho, sangria, then they're starting to really dig deep here, and they can't do it. But if you talk to people about Thai food or Italian food or French food, the list is almost endless. 10 is not a problem in any of those cuisines, but it certainly is in Spanish food. And it's almost like the Spanish tourism office feels like everyone knows Spanish food, so we shouldn't have to do anything about it. And I would beg to differ. (laughs) I don't think people know about Spanish food. And I think the food is vastly different throughout the country. I mean, Galicia has one cuisine and and the Basque country in another, Catalonia in another, and and Valencia, where I live, that's where paella was started. Yet Mm -hmm. people get off the cruise ship in Barcelona and look for paella, and they think it's the authentic thing, and it's just a tourist trap. And I think there's something to be said for experiencing the, the local cuisine where it's from. You know, when you're when you're in Andalusia, what what should you be eating? And you're in Extremadura, what should you be eating? And, and people don't know these regions of Spain. I mean, most people, if you looked at a map of Italy, and people could probably point out where Tuscany is, and they would know where Sicily is, and they might know a few other provinces in Italy. But apart from Catalonia, really for the politics and the Basque country, point out another region of Spain to me and that people would just look at a map and, and with a dumb look on their face, you know? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> it's kind of funny because when you talk about food in, in Spain or in Italy or any any of these places, mark, the, the marketing of it and, and getting the word out is definitely a big thing. I know I was looking for actually for a Spanish restaurant here in LA and I put that in the search engine and I got... I think two Spanish restaurants and everything else was Mexican restaurants. <laughs> and it's like, dude, I'm looking for Spanish. I'm not looking for Mexican or Ecuadorian yeah. or any Latin American. I'm looking for, you know, European. It's Spanish, right? And People don't so, know what Spanish food is. They don't. They really, they just, it's unfortunate, but they don't. And there's, but there's just so much great Spanish food and such a rich history of Spanish food. That and unfortunately, I've only had limited amounts of it. But the other thing that you brought up, because you were talking about the different regions, you know, Spain is just like Italy or just like France, where the actual region that's pretty much the only place you're going to find certain dishes, and that's it. You're not going to, I mean, in Italy, you're going to at this point, you'll find pizza all over the place, right? Sure, and you'll find pasta, but the pasta is made differently in in a variety of regions. Mm-hmm. Not only is the actual pasta itself made differently, some with eggs, some without eggs, some with different kinds of semolina. The other part of it is that the dishes, you know, you're not going to find a certain type of pasta dish in, say, Rome as you would in, say, Florence, right? You're just mm-hmm. not going to have that. Although over the years, it's gotten a little bit, they're mixing things up a little bit more, but Still, the uh, the culinary. I mean, if you're in Venice, you'll find all kinds of cicchetti, right? But and they do have a few cicchetti in the Mercado Centrale in um, uh, in Florence, 
in Venice, that's a, just a normal street food there. Yeah. And you yeah. find it everywhere. Whereas you get out of Venice and you're really not going to, you're not going to find that. You're going to find other things. You're going to find panino and, and different kinds of uh, sandwiches and, and different kinds of um, pastries and, and things region to region to region in Italy. And I'm sure it's the same. And as you described, it's the same thing in Spain. I don't know. I drive around and I see signs for DOP wines and stuff. And the signs are usually terribly faded, so you can't really make out anything on it. And what I find most baffling is that the website link is always at the bottom of the billboard, always in a really small font. And I'm thinking, <laughs> do you want people to learn about your product or not? You know? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I I think there's some some learning opportunities there, as we would say, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the more recent ones that I learned about was um, the two Chianti regions, right? There's Chianti, and then there's Chianti Classico. So Chianti Classico is essentially the one that everybody knows. They've done a really good job mar- in marketing, and they're kind of surrounded by the Chianti region, but and the Chianti consortium has been kind of doing they do a lot of tour trade tours here in in the states um, and actually around the world to promote their wines and and promote the difference and there is a market difference between those two chiantis right but i mean talk about confusion everybody just thinks chianti is chianti right that's true they're not making that distinction but there is definitely a distinction and the Chianti Classico people are the ones that have really done the best job with their marketing, probably of all the different wine regions in Italy, whereas others, you know, a little a blip here, a blip there, but not, not as much. Uh, but yeah, I think probably, and of course, everybody, you know, French wines, everybody knows they've been around for centuries and, you know, it, it's been kind of the quote unquote standard in wine. So when I think about wines, I think about just the vast numbers of really, really good wine that's out there, especially from Spain, Italy, France. I had some really great Greek wine recently, Portuguese wines. Uh, there's just so many. And of course, we've got a lot of great wines here in the States, but uh, you know, Europe, and it's cheap too. <laughs> Well, Rico, we need to wrap up the episode okay. soon, but I I would like to ask you if you have any words of wisdom or, or final parting ideas for some of our listeners. Yeah, it comes back to the earlier question of being fearless, being willing to explore, take a risk, do something that maybe, uh, maybe you're not quite 100% sure of, go to a new place, cook something you've never cooked before, and have fun doing it. You know, I mean, nobody's talking about taking risks and things that are going to involve uh, life threatening or anything like that. But we're talking about I, I know for me, when I travel, I like to take things slow. If I go to a place, I like to be there for at least three or four days minimum if it's a small town so that I can get a sense of the place, eat some of the food, meet some of the locals, sit in a cafe or just walk. That would be my other kind of thing is just walk 
take a walk and just keep walking and keep walking and keep looking around and, and exploring the streets of wherever you're at, because there's just so much to see on the streets. And yeah, of course, there's always the, the big attractions and, and things like that. But there's so much more that I have found in the little shops, the little courtyards, the museums, the architecture, the churches, and, and, and the street life itself that to me is the beauty of travel along with the food, of course. So that would be, yeah, just don't let that stuff pass you by. Take that all in and really just breathe it in and enjoy it and see it for what it is. So shake things up a little bit and get out and walk. And I agree yep. with you about walking. What a great way to see a city. You're not going to see it from the back city of an Uber or a tourist bus or the metro. Nope, not at all. You know, yeah, just walk around and and talk to people. You know, smell I mean, smell the most people the speak English and find that new great spot that was on a side street that you probably wouldn't have gone down before and decide and that's going to be the place where you had the best lunch of your whole trip. Yep. Cuz you yeah. found it yourself. I mean, yeah. And look at the food, you know, when you're when you're going by a place, look at the food, look what they're serving and if it looks mm-hmm. good. Okay. Yeah, I got to go eat there. That looks really good. Yeah. Okay, now you're making me hungry. (laughs) Well, Rico, thank you so much for taking your time to share your ideas and your experience with us and our listeners. Really appreciate it. And I hope we get a chance to meet in person one day. Well, so do I. Thank you so much for having me on, Eric. It's been a pleasure. It was a pleasure. Thank you again. That's it for this episode of the Eat Well, Travel Better podcast. This episode is brought to you by the World Food Travel Association and its training academy. We'd like to hear from you. We invite you to share your ideas, questions, and thoughts about the podcast by emailing us at help at worldfoodtravel.org, or you can connect with us and comment about the episode on major social media platforms. Special thanks to our guest, Rico Mandel, and our sincere thanks to you for joining us. I'm Eric Wolf, wishing you a safe, happy, and productive month ahead.